0: Uh, If you have your Bible, find uh, with me John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're steadily making our way through the gospel of John this school year, and I hope that you are benefiting from it as much as I have been. I've learned a great deal just in preparation to teach it on Sundays, and I hope you've been able to learn some things along the way. Not just for the sake of knowing the scriptures better, by the way. I mean, Jesus himself says... He faults the Pharisees later in this book, and he says, or he has already said, you, uh, you search the Scriptures because you, f- you find that you think that in knowing the Scriptures you have life, but it's they that bear witness to me. I hope that we learn uh, many things in the Gospel of John, but not just for the sake of knowing John better, not just for the sake of knowing the Scriptures better, but to the end of seeing Christ more clearly. and through that, through seeing Him clearly in the Scriptures to, to love and worship and follow Him more earnestly. That's my aim. And uh, before we get to chapter 7, to that end, I think it's a good thing at the outset to be reminded again of the purpose statement that John gave for his whole gospel. Um, when we come to the first half of chapter 7, it's going to be important to keep that in mind, I think, Uh, to be reminded of what was John's purpose in writing this entire gospel. Remember, he he tells us that at the end of the book, in the next to last chapter, at the end of that chapter. So at the end of chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, John wrote this. He said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe. Why did I write these things? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. See him clearly, believe, right? The Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And the whole point of this gospel, according to John's own stated purpose, is to see Jesus clearly for who he is, toward the aim of believing, not just knowing who he is, but believing in him, so that as john says we may have life in his name now what does he mean by life in his name i you know at the very least it has to do with those who don't yet believe those who have not come to believe that jesus is the christ that through the testimony of this gospel they might come to believe for the very first time and through believing have the, received the promise of eternal life in his name that very clearly is a purpose uh, of this gospel. We've already seen it again and again, especially maybe most clearly in John 3 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. But don't neglect also to remember f- further that life in his name also has application to those who have already professed faith, who already believe and have professed to believe in Jesus as a Christ to grow even deeper in their faith. Um, we see that application from what Jesus will famously say just a few chapters later after where we are presently in chapter 7. when He says in chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that's, and and, and it's when he says there and have it abundantly, talking about life, and have it abundantly, that you see he's not just talking about um, first-time faith, receiving the promise of eternal life upon first-time faith. It's not like they might have eternal life and really have it. No, that's not what he's saying. I think he's saying more than that. Not, it's just, he, when he says they might have life and have it abundantly, he's talking about those uh, not only who have professed faith for the first time, but he's talking about their ongoing, persevering faith in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that faith not only leads to eternal life in the future, but, but abundant life here and now. He's talking about not just first-time faith, but everyday faith in Christ. It's like, that's, John's not the only person that says this. Uh, it's, it's like what Paul says in Romans 10:17 when he said, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's the Scripture. So that, in that passage, to be sure, it's talking about those who have never heard coming to believe for the very first time. Because right before that, he said, How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So when he says faith comes from hearing, primarily he's talking about getting the gospel to those who never heard so that they can hear and believe for the first time. But it's also no less true that our ongoing faith, our daily, when I wake up tomorrow, my faith tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, my faith on, on a day-to-day basis is something that is nourished and strengthened just like it, by the same means that it it came to be in the first place through hearing the word of Christ over and over and over again. And and then the Spirit speaks to me through that and my faith grows. Why are we mentioning all that here? Because in John 7, I I think this, and not just in John 7, but in his gospel as a whole, I think this is something that is on John's mind constantly. Um, it's, It's like... John is not just keen on presenting Christ so that you see Him clearly toward the aim of you believing, but also on John's mind in this gospel is when people don't believe, what's keeping them from believing? What is, what is standing in the way of their faith? Why do they not believe? Um, that's why I said when... when, when You know, um, I think when we think about it in terms of what I just said, it's not what what just keeps people from believing for the very first time, but also what, as in our ongoing faith, what are the things that can weaken our faith and keep us from progressing further and deeper and richer in our faith in Christ? What are the things that not only just keep people from coming to faith in Christ for the first time, but what are those things on an ongoing basis that fight against our faith on a day-to-day basis? even after we believe. I think when we come to John chapter 7, the first half of it, we're coming to a passage that it seems to me is laying out some of those things. There are things that, yes, can, can and do, we see it in this passage, they do at least for a time, keep people from coming to faith in Christ, period, for the very first time. Um, but I would submit that there, they, the things that he presents here aren't things that then immediately stop being a temptation to us once we profess faith. They continue to be a reality in our life and fight against our faith for the rest of our life, or can be a temptation uh, to fight against our faith for the rest of our life. So as we read our passage in just a minute, I want to suggest that we're going to find in it three different hindrances, three different hindrances to faith in Christ. I I think he's already done this once in in John's gospel, back in the second half of chapter four when we talked about um, who receives Jesus and who does Jesus receive? You may remember that. Now, John, again, on a similar theme, he, we're just going to see, he's not routinely taking care to present Jesus clearly, but also t- routinely taking inventory to how people were receiving Jesus and, and, and whether, whether or not they were believing, and if not, why not? So that being said, let's read our passage together, and, I, and then I'll try to show you what I, I think John is trying to show us here. So we're in John 7. We're going to look at verses 1 to 24. So if you found your place there, follow along as I read aloud, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not, and I I would insert, I think this means I am not yet going up to the feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority." Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's, man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, Clear authoritative And necessary word And uh, it is our desire Not to stand in judgment over it But to come under it Because it is those things It is your authoritative word over us So would you please Lord Give us eyes to see the truth here Would you give us minds To understand what John is saying What Jesus is saying What you were saying through John Would you give us not only eyes To see it minds to understand it but hearts to embrace and love the truth here. Love Jesus through the truth. And uh, would you give us wills to obey whatever it calls us to do? Help us to obey. Give me the help that I need to teach. Give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, maybe as, as we read the passage, I tried to slow down and pause with emphasis sometimes. You could kind of see for yourself what I was getting at earlier. Like I said, I think as you move through the narrative of this passage, you can see how John almost overtly at times points out why some people weren't believing, um, what kept them from faith. So what I want to do for just a few minutes is walk back through this passage and, like I said, see three different hindrances that I think he identifies for us, three different common hindrances uh, to faith in Jesus that John at least very strongly alludes to here when not outright saying it, they're important for us to hear, not only to understand why some people hesitate to trust in Christ as Savior and follow Him as Lord at all, but again, also to understand our own hearts, even if we already believe, to understand the continuing um, uh, hindrances to the fervency of our own faith that, that we're presented with. And, All right, here here are the three hindrances that I think John highlights if you're taking notes. The first is familiarity with Jesus. Familiarity with Jesus. I think we'll see this right at the outset in verses 1 through 10 between Jesus and his own brothers um, as they were preparing to go from Galilee in the north southward to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. Familiarity with Jesus. The second is fear of man. Fear of man. I think we see this tucked away just briefly in the middle of the passage in verses 11 through 13 when John tells us what different people were saying about Jesus as, as the feast was beginning, as they were looking for Jesus. Where is he? Where is he? What were they saying? And I think fear of man is, a, is an issue presented there. Now The third and final hindrance that he highlights, I, I was thinking of a way to say it. And I think this captures it from verses 14 to 24 are fixed opinions, fixed opinions about Jesus, about lots of things, especially, the, you know, the people here, especially the Jewish rulers had fixed opinions about Jesus already before he ever showed up. They had already made opinions about Jesus in, in part by something that he had done months and months earlier back in chapter five they just it kept them prejudiced against jesus so they didn't want to believe and so they would not believe fixed opinions so i hope again as we move through this passage think about these things keep them in mind in order to be one a better better prepared witness for christ as you go out and you share the gospel and people don't believe it may give you insight into why some are slow to believe i mean um, there's nothing new under the sun. If fear of man was, a, was an issue then, fear of man is an issue now. If fixed opinions and prejudices against the faith and Jesus was an issue, then it is now. Um, we live in the Bible Belt and cultural Christianity. If familiarity is a, was a thing then, it's a thing now. So to be a better witness for Christ, be familiar with these things, but also, again, to search your own heart for t- these kinds of tendencies that might creep up in your own heart from time to time, keeping your faith lukewarm. So let's dive into the text and and think first about the hindrance to our faith that familiarity with Jesus can be. We see it in verses 1 through 10. Look there with me. So we kind of saw in the last chapter, um, and like we've seen repeatedly in John's gospel, that John is always mindful to give the reader, you the reader, me the reader, time stamps and place information. He tells us in verse 1, That Jesus he tells us where they were Jesus and his disciples were still north in Galilee Um, he Jesus had you've got Galilee in the north and Judea in the south Judea is where Jerusalem was Judea and Galilee Jesus and his disciples had been basically for the most part hanging out in the north up in Galilee for some time now because remember back in chapter 5 was the last time when he was really there for some time, and he healed that invalid man on the Sabbath. And the rulers didn't like it, and they were trying to kill Jesus even as early as chapter 5, verse 18. And so it was not, Jesus knew it was not his time to die yet, so he got out of there, not to stir the pot unnecessarily. He went north to get out of the thick of things into Galilee, and he's been there ever since. So that's where they are. Um, and, uh, and it also tells us in verse 2 when this was happening. It says in verse 2 that the Feast of Booths was at hand. That's going to be a very important detail next week when we look at what Jesus says at the end of chapter 7. We'll come back, almost like we did last week with the Passover and Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. We'll come back to this detail next week um, to see the significance of uh, the Feast of Booths when Jesus, for example, talks about living water. Um, But anyway, at the very least, the fact that what I want you to get today is the fact that it tells us that it was the Feast of Booze means that what we're going to read about here in chapter 7 is six months after what we read about in chapter 6. Chapter 6, when Jesus fed the 5,000, walking on the water, it said the Passover was at hand. Feast of Booze was six months after the Passover, right? So we're talking about six months after chapter 6, which means we're even more— Several months even earlier than that, possibly up to a year later from the events in chapter 5. It's going to come back and be somewhat significant in just, in just a minute. So hold that time stamp in your head. But the Feast of Booze is at hand. And, uh, and as far as the present setting in verses 1 through 10, you find Jesus' brothers uh, and his family getting, getting ready to, to go make the journey down from the north in Galilee down south into Judea to Jerusalem to observe the feast. In that day, I mean, it wasn't like just jump in your car and go. It would have, it would have been a big deal to travel anywhere, to travel some distance, and there was some danger involved. So often in that day, especially going to one of the feasts of the Jews, they would also often travel in a, in a caravan together, right? They would carpool. It, would, it, would, uh, it wouldn't often maybe not just their family, but maybe several from their community would travel together on the roads down to Jerusalem. And that's what's going on here. And as they were preparing to go, Jesus' brothers start talking to Jesus. And in verse 3, they tell him that in their opinion he should go with them down to, to Jerusalem, and leave Galilee and start spending more time down in, in Judea. Why? They say in verses 4 and 5 that if, if he is who he says he is, then he should, as they put it in, uh, verse five, in at the end of verse 4, show yourself to the world. Why were they saying this? Well, maybe you could put a, a, a more positive spin on this why would they be urging Jesus to show himself to the world? Don't spend all your time holed up here in, in Galilee. Go down to Jerusalem where stuff happens and show yourself to the world if, if you really do these things. What kind of positive spin could you put on that? Well, maybe, maybe um, some part of them knew the truth about him. Maybe some part of them at least knew that he had done some pretty remarkable things. He had fed five thousand people he walked on water he had healed an official son just by a word without even going to the place go and without even going to cana to do it just with a spoken word from a distance maybe they had heard some of these things maybe they in part believed it i don't know but maybe they said hey don't just do it here go to jerusalem where a lot of people can see you do this maybe they said maybe they part of them wanted a famous brother so that they could share in his fame maybe I don't know. Or maybe they, they also had just a general misunderstanding of what the Messiah would do when he came. Right? I mean, a lot of people in that day, a lot of the Jews in that day, um, believed that when the Messiah came, uh, he would be more a, 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 um, a great ruler, a great military leader more, more, than, more than anything in the sense that they believed that the Messiah's primary goal when he came would be to overthrow the ruling authorities over Israel, throw off the Romans so that Israel could be an independent nation under God once again. And, and, and the Messiah's job in that sense would be as much political as it was spiritual, right? Right? so if that's the idea that his brothers had uh, and had sort of imbibed about the messiah the coming messiah then if their brother jesus was in fact that messiah if you're going to accomplish those kinds of things those kind of political goals the throwing off of the romans if you're going to do that you're not going to do that being holed up anonymous and obscure in galilee go down to jerusalem make yourself known that's a positive spin on it. But is that the, is, are either of those the reasons given here? I don't know. How do we know that's not the reasons they were saying this? Because John flatly tells us in verse 5 for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. Now we know that later on some of his brothers did believe. And they were influential in the church. But at this point, John says, they didn't. They didn't believe. And to me, it colors everything that they said up to that point. That, that unbelief colors everything that they said up to that point. To me, it colors the statement in verse 4, if you do these things. When they say in verse 4, uh, for no one works in secret If he seeks to be known openly if you do these things show yourself to the world I mean they didn't really believe it verse 5 says so and so they believe they believe here's how I would here's how I would interpret that then reading between the lines from what is stated I believe that they believed he's staying in Galilee And he's not making himself known in Jerusalem because he's not really who he says he is. He's afraid to make himself known in Jerusalem. Jesus' brothers think that going to Jerusalem would expose the truth about him. And their rejection of him there, the people's rejection of Jesus there in Jerusalem, which his brothers anticipate in their minds, would validate their suspicion about him if you're really the Messiah, go to Jerusalem, they'll accept you. They're wrong. They believe rejection of him would prove that he's not the Messiah. Jesus calmly tells them in verses 6 and 7 that actually they, they would reject him if he goes, as they imply, but that would not at all prove he's not the Messiah. It would only prove that they don't understand who the Messiah is. They don't understand what the Messiah was coming to do. So he tells them, to go on to Jerusalem with the caravan, and he's going to hold back a little while. I think that's what it means when he says, I'm not going up to the feast. It's not like Jesus was lying to him. I'm not going. Psych. I'm going. I don't think that's what he was doing. I think, I think it means, I'm not going yet. I'm not going with you. I think that's clear when John explains in verse 10, he says Jesus chose to go not publicly, but privately. If he had hopped on with the caravan, and there's a bunch of them going together and they're going to ride into Jerusalem together. That's quite an obvious and public way of coming into Jerusalem. Jesus didn't want all that. He wants quiet. But why were Jesus' brothers so cynical? Why did they not believe? The The most likely explanation is that they were so familiar with him. Like, they had grown up with him. They had lived with him. And it was simply inconceivable that this could be true of him. In Mark 3.21, his brothers think and actually say that they think that Jesus was out of his mind. Mark 3.21. To say the things he was saying, you are out of your mind, Jesus. They were no different than the others in Jesus' hometown who also didn't believe. Familiarity breeds contempt it can they were around jesus heard jesus all the time were probably tired of jesus and they didn't want to see anything special about him they didn't believe because they didn't want to believe it kept them from seeing i think i think like i hinted at earlier i think this is a particular danger in our part of the world and cultural christianity I think increasingly cultural Christianity is crumbling, but I think that's a good thing. It can be a good thing instead of a negative thing because cultural Christianity is just this sort of veneer of Christianity over a culture. It, it's, 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 it's like Christianity sprinkled on everything, um, and, 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 and people, people become inundated with just walking around breathing the air of um, Christianity kind of, but not really. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's like, so when you, when you tell somebody about Jesus, it's like they've heard enough to inoculate them. And, 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 and they've heard it all before, nothing to see here, move on. Familiar, familiarity can be a dangerous hindrance to belief. The same can be true of those who already believe, who have already professed faith in Christ in the sense that we hear truths enough that if we're not careful, the wonder of them becomes lost on us. Um, And the depth of our worship is compromised as well as the urgency and the joy of our obedience. The The antidote for us as believers is not to read less Scripture lest I become too familiar with them, um, it's not being less faithful to meet together with other believers in the church for fear I might become too familiar with it. Um, the antidote is to ask the Holy Spirit to continue to work in your heart as you continue to give yourself faithfully these things so that your familiarity with Scriptures and your familiarity with Christ is no longer a hindrance but a strength. That's, that's the problem that... That's the hurdle that Jesus' brothers could not get over. But as we keep reading the story, I think familiarity isn't the only hindrance to us presented here. There are a couple of verses right in the middle of the passage that show us also that fear of man can be a hindrance to faith. So as Jesus went on down to Jerusalem by himself for the feast, his brothers would have gone down ahead of him with the rest of the people. He didn't want to make a public entrance. By the way, he didn't, make a, he didn't want to make a public entrance here like he would in just a few months later at the next Passover when he comes in and, and you've got the triumphal entry and people are waving palm branches and, and singing songs to him. Yeah, he's not afraid of public entrances per se. It's just not time for it yet. The next time he comes to Jerusalem, it's going to be straight up public and you can't miss it, right? But not here. We're told, and and we're told that he came in privately in verse 11, that the Jews were looking for him at the feast. They probably were thrown off like, I see his brothers, I see his brothers, where's Jesus? You know, they don't see him. Where is he, they say. So you can see why Jesus chose to go in quietly alone. But what I want us to focus on is what John then tells us in verses 12 and 13. There he says, and there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. And John can't just report the facts. He says, yet for fear of the Jews. He gives, he gives the reason. For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Now, clearly, when he says there, for fear of the Jews... He means the Jewish rulers, the Jewish spiritual leaders, because those muttering these things would have been Jews also, right? But here John just comes out with it and says that it was for fear of the Jews. It was for fear of the Jewish rulers that they muttered things about Jesus, but they dared not take a principled stand about him because they feared the repercussions they would face. Later in the chapter, in verse 32, it says the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent offers to arrest Jesus. So the possibility of repercussions was real. They weren't afraid of uh, a figment of their imagination. They saw they were really trying to arrest Jesus, and they didn't want to be arrested. They saw they were trying to kill Jesus. They didn't want that. They were afraid of it. They they, they knew there would be repercussions for coming out in favor of Jesus, for professing belief, for saying anything more than he's a good man. Professing faith in him and following him as a disciple. And you can see how, see how how the fear of man in that way is a real hindrance to saving faith in Christ. Why is fear of man in that way a hindrance to saving faith in Christ I think the main reason because it never looks squarely at Christ it never looks squarely at Christ it looks at that which you fear it looks at yourself and your fear Jesus is only at the edge of the picture and until we look squarely at Jesus and consider deeply who He is, those things that we fear will, continually, will continue to bear a heavy weight on us and will continue to have a real merit in our minds. But if we can look squarely at Jesus and we can see Jesus clearly and consider the truth of His claims, any, from that moment on, any fear we might otherwise have, will not outweigh the fear of God. When we have really considered Christ deeply in our own hearts and minds, the Holy Spirit will produce in us the same boldness that he gave to Peter and John. Think about that. Peter. Just take Peter for, any, for example. Prior to Jesus' crucifixion, Peter, three times in one night. I don't know him. I don't know him. I'm not that guy. I don't know him. I've not been associated with him. Afraid. Same Peter, day of Pentecost, or after the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit. We must obey God rather than men, even under physical threat. Fear of man is a real hindrance for faith for a lot of people. But it is also a hindrance to... to, uh, our faithfulness and obedience to Christ, even after we profess faith in Him. But the antidote is the same. Think deeply on Jesus. Look squarely at Him. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, we to follow Him. Consider what you profess to believe. Fear of anything else over over Christ is utterly irrational. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to listen to that fear. But there is one more hindrance to faith that I want us to consider quickly, and that's what we find in the remainder of the passage in verses 14 to 24. And to try to summarize what the hindrance of faith is here, I've simply called it fixed opinions. Fixed opinions about Jesus, fixed opinions fixed prejudices about him. I think, I think uh, that pretty well summarizes what we see in these last 10 verses. It's in these verses that Jesus, now in Jerusalem, makes himself known at the feast. And in the middle of the feast, Jesus goes into the temple and begins to teach in the middle of everybody. We're going to see more about that teaching at the end of the chapter uh, next week. But He's in the middle of the temple now, and he's, teach, he's in the middle of everybody teaching. And, and the, the, the following verses, verses 14 to 24, really stays focused on the Jewish rulers. The focus stays on them, the ones who were trying to kill him. We've seen Jesus' brothers and what kept them from faith. We've seen the people in Jerusalem and what was keeping them from believing. And now it, the, the, the focus turns to the third group, the Jewish religious Leaders and what was keeping them from believing. And I want to focus specifically on three verses mainly in this last part of the passage. There's a lot we could say here, but much of of what he says here in these verses is almost identical to what he said back at the end of chapter 5 in that passage that Dylan uh, taught us here, back at the end of chapter 5. He simply repeats here, what he said there just a little more succinctly. I don't, we don't have time to um, run, our, run through this carefully, but you can, you can uh, go back and, and look at that and compare it yourself. But the rulers had already made up their minds about certain things. And it kept them far from Jesus to great cost that they could not see. The first thing I want to point you to is what John says in verses 14 and 15. Like we said, uh, Jesus stood up in verse 14 and began to teach the people And notice what the rulers say in verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They already had fixed opinions about who was credible to listen to. If he didn't look like this or sound like this or have this kind of background, do we really listen to him? Can we really take his word for it? Their fixed opinions about credentials, in other words, and who, who they would even allow a hearing to kept them from seeing and hearing Jesus. This is, this is without question alive and well in our day-to-day. Like, we prejudge people based on who they are, what they look like, what their background is, and if you fit in, this category or this category or this category, I don't even need to listen to you. You don't even have anything worth saying that I should, This worth me listening to. Like, we we automatically prejudge people into certain categories whether or not we want to give them a hearing. We even want to listen to what they say. There's nothing new under the sun. But it wasn't just that they had fixed opinions about credentials. They, had already, they already had fixed opinions about Jesus himself because the second verse I want to draw your attention to is verse 21 where Jesus said in the middle of everything else he said, he says in verse 21, I did one work. I did one work. And you all marvel at it. What is the one work he's talking about? He in chapter 7 is still talking about something he did way back in chapter 5 when he healed an invalid man at the pool of Bethesda. And I mentioned earlier, that was possibly a full year earlier. He comes back into Jerusalem, and they're still harping on something he did a year ago, right? They didn't forget things easily. And what exactly was their problem with Jesus healing that man at the pool of Bethesda? When did he do it? On the Sabbath, he did a work on the Sabbath. And just, just to point it out here, Jesus chews them up and spits them out on the law here. He basically says, he turns them, in, and just to paraphrase what he says, he says, basically he says, if, if a Jewish couple has a baby and, he, and that baby turns eight days old on the Sabbath day, and they bring that baby to the, to the, to the temple to be circumcised on, on the eighth day as the law stipulates. And it's the Sabbath day. You say, that's fine by the law of Moses to do that work, to circumcise a, 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 an infant son on the Sabbath day. But you're saying to me, Jesus says, that making a man's whole body well on the Sabbath day is not fine. Circumcising a baby's fine. Making a man's whole body well is not fine. I'm sure in Jesus' deep Southern English, he followed that up with "Don't make no sense." But the point I want to make here is that in, it's that the opinion they fixed in their minds about him on something that happened a year earlier was still clouding their 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 their, their, their thinking about him. They were completely wrong on the law, but they didn't want to hear it, so they couldn't hear it. Their fixed opinions made them question Jesus in the first place because he didn't have the credentials they wanted to give him a hearing. And then their fixed opinions, based on something he had done a year earlier, kept them from hearing the truth when he put it plainly in front of them. And he tells them outright in the third verse I want to draw your attention to, verse 24, that their fixed opinions was keeping them from right judgments. They were, they were just judging him and everything based on appearances. Their fixed opinions and their prejudice against Jesus caused superficial and misguided judgments about him. But I, I said that this was great cost to them and they didn't even see it. I mentioned to you that essentially he tells them more or less the same thing in this chapter as he did in chapter 5. And, and when you have time to compare it, you can look at them side by side and see the similarities. But The point I want to make about this is they were so immovable in their opinions and they, in, in their resolution not to give Jesus a hearing, not to like him. Jesus felt no obligation to tell them anything new. If they won't listen, I'll just tell you the same thing over and over again. Like, people have all kinds of preconceived ideas about Jesus that make them deaf to the truth when they hear it. And even in believers, this can be an ongoing process in our sanctification. Like, for the, for the Spirit to expose our, our preconceived ideas about things that maybe we're unaware of so we can hear the Scriptures clearly, more clearly, and grow in our likeness to Christ. Well, just wrap it up. I think we need to pay attention to things like this in John's gospel. There's there's a pattern that, that keeps coming up. We're deep enough into the gospel to start seeing this. Like, one, he presents Jesus to us as clearly as anywhere. Two, he urges the reader to believe and find life in Christ. But three, he makes clear again and again all the different things that keep people from believing. Maybe if we're aware of what stands in our way, we can examine our own hearts and help people examine theirs to come to faith in Jesus. But I find passages like these helpful for believers because these things that we've seen still creep up in our own hearts. They plague our faith. Familiarity, fear of man, fixed opinions and prejudices. We need to pray that the Spirit will break us of those things as we follow hard after Christ. The Christ we profess to believe and trust let's pray father thank you so much for this word and I pray that you will help us uh, take what we learn here not not just to be better witnesses of Christ as we go out and 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 bear witness to the gospel with unbelievers but also to examine our own hearts because these tendencies don't just exist in the hearts of unbelievers but they continue to, to exist in some measure in our own hearts that, that uh, we, by, with the help of the Holy Spirit, still have to kill in our own hearts. So help us to think uh, critically about these things. In Jesus' name, amen.